This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. We're here with Wharton professor Sidney Winter to talk about his book on technological innovation. It's called Innovation and the Evolution of Industries. Welcome, Professor. Thank you. Glad to be here. So first of all, tell us uh, about your book. Well, I should probably first tell you about my three co-authors. I've got uh, one American co-author is my friend Richard Nelson, with whom I've worked a lot over the years. And then there are two Italian colleagues, uh, Franco Malerba and Luigi Orsonigo. So we've been at this together for uh, quite a few years now. We started actually uh, on the research program way back in the late 1990s, and then the first draft of the book uh, appeared in uh, 2012, I think it was. We worked on it for four and a half years before it was actually finally published by Cambridge University Press. In terms of the subject, the book deals with the interactions between innovation and industry evolution, how uh, innovative activity affects industry evolution, how industry evolution affects the level of innovative activity. And uh, an important part of our objective is to put forward a new method for studying this kind of question. And the new method is called uh, history-friendly modeling. So all four of the authors are economists, I believe. Is the term industry evolution a standard one in economics? Yes, we are all economists, and the answer is that unfortunately the term uh, industry evolution is not particularly standard in economics. I suspect that most of today's uh, undergraduate economic majors never hear that term in the course of their uh, education. But uh, outside of economics and in, uh, innovation studies and in the field of strategic management, also in evolutionary economics, uh, it's a very familiar term. So what does evolutionary mean in connection with economics? It means that there's a lot of emphasis on how economic events unfold in time, and that means in particular over substantial periods of time. In particular, there's the question of where new things come from, which is the innovation part of the story. This is pretty much what evolutionary means in biology, too. Uh, it's about things unfolding over long periods, uh, as illustrated by Darwin's title, The Origin of Species. It's also about where the new things uh, come from. The book actually provides a strong illustration of these two themes since it deals with the uh, interactions between evolution and innovation. And it also illustrates actually a number of other aspects of the evolutionary approach. So does the book examine the evolution of particular industries? Yes, indeed it does. It uh, has three core chapters which uh, deal in turn with the U.S. computer industry, uh, with the semiconductor industry considered as a supplier to the computer industry, uh, and with the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, in each of these cases, uh, we examine a period of about 50 years or so of actual industry history. And in our presentation in the chapter, the first thing we do is to summarize uh, that 50-year history. Then we uh, draw on the literature, literature that already exists uh, about that industry in that time period uh, and consider the explanations it offers or the mechanisms it suggests for why the industry uh, developed in the particular 
way uh, that it did. And then drawing on that, we create a custom-made computer simulation model for that particular industry at that particular time period and try to build into it the mechanisms that have been previously identified by other scholars as being the important ones in the history. And then we use that simulation model and we use it first to try to reproduce some main features of the history itself to show that indeed the uh, explanations that have been uh, suggested uh, can be made to work when they're spelled out in detail in the context of a uh, computer model. And then having done that, we take up counterfactual history. We uh, consider what would have happened if some of the background conditions of the industry uh, had been uh, quite different. For example, uh, suppose that uh, uh, the advances achieved in semiconductor technology had been uh, smaller than they were or suppose that the pharmaceutical industry had a different sort of patent system facing it than the one it actually did. And then we uh, uh, examined those results to suggest what difference it would have made if those particular historical circumstances had been different. And then at the end of the book, we uh, pull it all together in a summary, and we also uh, speculate a bit about where else one could go with these kinds of methods. Well, I'm sure it takes a long time to explain one of these computer models, but can you give us a general idea of how they work? Yes, I certainly can. Uh, The sort of Basic aspects of these models uh, are the same as some that have existed for a lot longer, uh, in particular the same as some that uh, Nelson, and I, and Nelson and I put forward uh, back uh, in 1982 in our book, uh, An Evolutionary Theory of Economic Change. And a lot of uh, people followed that lead and did uh, similar work uh, after that. So those basic building blocks are, first of all, we have model firms, you know, individual firms are uh, modeled as agents. This is sometimes called agent-based modeling nowadays, but we were doing it before it was called that. Um, and uh, then these firms are put into a, a model market environment where they compete, and they are also, and they set the usual things, there is price and output determination as there is in uh, basic uh, economic models. And um, then we also have uh, some sort of technological environment or a technological opportunity environment, which determines what it is that the the firms are able to do by spending uh, resources on research and development activity. And so uh, that research and development activity and that particular sort of environment drives the progress in the uh, model and uh, provides feedback to profitability uh, and and other things. We also have some other features in each of these models because there's some always some aspects of the setting that you uh, have to consider. For example, there are things that determine uh, the conditions on which firms exit the industry, the conditions on which new firms enter the industry, which is quite important. And um, so we have to include specifications of those things, too. So are the model firms representations of actual historical firms like IBM, Dell, and Intel? No, we don't uh, actually attempt to match our model firms to individual historical examples. What we're hoping is that if we get the 
causal forces right, that if we understand the mechanisms that are shaping things, then then our array of uh, toy firms, if you want to call them that, uh, the model firms, are going to represent the collection of behaviors that the, that the real firms as a collection also represented. And there's one sort of exception to that or a partial exception to that, which is kind of interesting and it illustrates the way the model works. Uh, as you probably know, IBM was a dominant uh, firm of the U.S. computer industry for a very large a chunk of its history, uh, just perhaps roughly 35 or 40 years of its history. Um, and uh, so that there is one dominant firm like that is a uh, salient feature of the history. It's something you ask yourself if you look at that history, why did that happen? And, uh, and is that related to basic conditions of the industry? So we went at it with the assumption that it uh, that it was related to the basic conditions of the industry and that some of the causal mechanisms that had been talked about were the relevant ones. And so we tried to build that those causes into the model. Now, when we look at simulation results, it turns out that indeed there's one big dominant firm. So we used to uh, have the habit of looking at output and uh, saying, well, there's IBM uh, identifying this little model firm with the historical ones because it came to resemble it in terms of its uh, role in the industry. But uh, that wasn't designed in. That was an emergent uh, feature, a, a thing that the causal forces in the model uh, produced by themselves, uh, not uh, something that we designed into it. So when you study the history of a particular industry, what features are you looking for? There are a number of things that are uh, pretty well recognized in the industry evolution literature as being uh, particularly important or characteristic of these patterns. And maybe the most famous of those features is the phenomenon known as the shakeout, which means that uh, uh, typically in the start of a new industry, there's a period where uh, there's a flu flow of new firms coming in, uh, and some of them succeed and some of them fail, and more come in and more fail, and so on. But the overall result of that is that you look at the picture, and the picture is one where um, over a period of perhaps a few decades uh, at the start of the industry, the, uh, the number of firms involved in it goes up, up, up. And then it reaches a peak uh, and comes down, down, down in quite a, a dramatic way. And that down, down, down uh, is a part is what's called the shakeout. Uh, means a lot of firms are failing or choosing to exit uh, from the industry. So, for example, in the classic example of the uh, U.S. auto industry, uh, the number of firms active in it was peaked at somewhere around 120 uh, back in the 1920s, a few decades after the start of the industry, uh, and then tumbled down uh, to the big three <laughs> over a lo another long period of time as, those, as a lot of those firms uh, fell by the wayside. So that's a, that's a very uh, dramatic uh, feature of a lot of histories, and it's one that they don't tell you about in the economics courses in school. Uh, it's one of the dramatic examples of how, uh, how the evolutionary approach highlights different things than, than you have ordinarily heard about. 
Then there are some other uh, major features is a question of uh, uh, what happens to the industry structure. Uh, do a few large firms or even one large firm uh, come to dominate the scene? Uh, how does that work over, uh, over a period of time? Uh, and these processes uh, are a reflection generally of very important feedback loops of uh, success breeds success uh, feedback uh, for some of the for some of the firms involved. So we look for that for those cumulative process and those feedback loops. And then the uh, last thing that to mention maybe is that there are sometimes discontinuities in the technological environment which come from sources uh, that are not really a feature of the behavior of the firms that are involved. So in our stories, for example, in the semiconductor industry, um, defense-related R&D and support of uh, basic research relevant to semiconductors is a very, very important factor. Uh, it shapes the opportunities and then the uh, relatively discrete invention of the microprocessor is a very important discontinuity in this in the industry. So uh, in looking at the history, you look for those kinds of uh, shaping events which may not be part of the internal logic of the economics but, but actually matter to the history. And you wouldn't get the history back if you left those out of the story. So how does your approach differ from what economists might do in the same area? Well, other, other economists, uh, whom we uh, generally refer to as mainstream economists because they're following the mainstream of the research traditions that have dominated in the discipline since about the middle of the last century, um, those other economists include a few who have actually worked on the industry evolution uh, topic, although it's actually very few. But in general, um, mainstream economics... Uh, likes to focus on firms uh, trying to get exactly the right answers to their problems, uh, well, optimizing or maximizing behavior. And we uh, do not have that emphasis at all. And the reason we don't have that emphasis is that when you're taking time seriously, when you're taking the uh, uh, evolutionary development seriously, you also have to take seriously the fact that there is a lot of uncertainty in the world. And uncertainty makes uh, strategic decision-making by, by business firms very, a very difficult thing. So uh, there are two ways to go. One way is to think harder and harder about what uh, firms could do to try to get exactly the right answer. Uh, that's sort of the min mainstream instinct to do that. And then our instinct is rather the opposite. Our instinct is to say, well, mostly firms are operating out of habits or out of rules of thumb or out of heuristic uh, understandings that are not uh, precise. And it's those drivers plus luck plus chance uh, that actually shape the way behavior unfolds. So we, in our you know emphasis on the unfolding in time, we don't put a lot of emphasis on the effort to get exactly the right answer, and that is a uh, that is the firm's getting the right answer, and uh, so that is a big distinction between our approach and the uh, and the mainstream approach. How did you come up with the idea for the history-friendly approach? 
as I mentioned, uh, some of these methods, some of these concepts and some of these methods uh, go back uh, quite a ways. Um, at least uh, they go they go back uh, to to our 1982 book and and some of the things before that, um, and uh, uh, so the four of us were thinking at one point in the 1990s about how we could do uh, a new generation of work that was sort of in the spirit of that earlier work, but and used some of its uh, some of its methods, but was more firmly dedicated to trying to understand uh, specific pieces of reality. You know, there was not, uh, not the typical kind of theoretical exercise where you showed if this happens, that might happen, uh, and you, you show that in a kind of decontextualized uh, way, uh, but rather to try to do an exercise where we... Uh, study some actual contexts and study some actual patterns of evolution and try to capture in our theoretical work what it is what it was that was going on uh, in those particular cases so that was the idea that we came across let's have a new generation that is aimed at being more directly empirically relevant because it is dealing with uh, things that actually happened and trying to explain them. That was where the idea came from. Well, finally, what are some of the key takeaways from your research? We have, we hope uh, at least, we have uh, maybe three different audiences in mind. Um, a very important audience for us is the audience of our uh, of our scientific colleagues, of our economist colleagues and the uh, graduate students that all of us uh, try to raise in our in our own image, so to speak. Um, and uh, we hope that these people will be struck by the promise of the methods that we put forward, not just by our reading of these particular industry histories, but rather by the fact that it is possible to um, be systematic in your effort to take apart the explanation, the mechanisms uh, that are driving such a history. So we hope they will be uh, sufficiently impressed by that to try to do some of it themselves, and we will have contributed to uh, a wider um, movement that will improve our understanding of the economy. Then um, for managers, in particular for, uh, for business managers, I think the models and the uh, histories have uh, the potential at least to make people think a bit about uh, a number of questions or a number of um, strategic factors that are illustrated in these histories. Uh, one of the first questions, which I've often heard uh, discussed in Mac Institute meetings, by the way, uh, one of the first questions is, in your situation, where are you uh, really relative to the shakeout? You know, given this very strong typical pattern. If you're in an industry and the industry is 10 or 15 years old, you may well be uh, on the way to the shakeout, uh, not past it. And uh, so that's an important kind of thing to understand, that there's going to be a, a, uh, a time of stress in which a lot of the uh, contenders are going to fall by the wayside. Uh, 
So to, to see that and to see, particular in our pharmaceutical industry chapter, uh, our discussion of why that happens and why it doesn't happen some of the time because it doesn't always happen, uh, I think that would be a, a, a uh, useful stimulus to the strategic imaginations of, uh, of uh, managers who can kind of match the elements of the story to their own um, to their own situation and ask where they stand in those different respects. And then, in some cases, the uh, uh, results of the work. I think have also got an audience uh, in in the public policy sphere, where, um, in particular, uh, some of our work with the counterfactual history and the in the um, role of the patent industry, patent system in pharmaceuticals. Uh, some of that certainly opened my eyes about possibilities for causal mechanisms that were rather different than. Um, than I had imagined. Uh, situations are more complicated than I had imagined, um, and we accidentally got some of this complication more or less well represented in the in the models. I mean, not accidentally, uh, really, but uh, in in making an attempt, we happened to have the luck to make a good enough attempt uh, to. Um, uh, to uh, actually get some insight uh, about the way those things work. So that's another sort of possible audience. And then lastly, there's just people who are interested in the way the economy works and in economic history and then the way industries work. And, and there's a lot of uh, uh, material in the book for them. Uh, they wouldn't necessarily have to follow in detail our, our computer modeling uh, choices, uh, that we argue for, but there's a lot of history, and a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, suggestive quantitative results, a lot of interesting charts, and so on. So I think that uh, people who are just generally interested in the economy uh, would find uh, a lot to, uh, to uh, appreciate there. Well, thank you for telling us about your book and for joining us today. Thank you for asking me to be here. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.